0: Well, almost everyone likes Jesus. At least that's what the surveys say. Jesus is more popular than uh, most politicians and entertainment personalities, athletes, and even tech entrepreneurs. And it's been that way for years. In fact, those who are fond of Jesus sometimes make some strange bedfellows people like Gandhi and Matthew McGonaughey and Lady Gaga and Albert Einstein. Jesus was even just all right with the Doobie Brothers. But what people say is usually about a particular version of Jesus that uh, is very common, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the Mr. Rogers Jesus, the love your enemies Jesus who always turned his cheek. But people haven't always liked Jesus. Um, Once people get up close and personal with Jesus, they also sometimes aren't quite so enamored. The New Testament paints a very complex view of Jesus, a picture of Jesus, and sometimes what he did and said doesn't jive with the milder version of Jesus that's so popular. There's no question that Jesus brought a vision of love and peace and justice, but it's also true that the Jesus we find in the Bible is not quite the domesticated Jesus that is so popular. A few weeks ago, we started a new series called John on Jesus, and for the last few weeks, we've looked at a few scenes from the life of Jesus that have some reactions to Jesus, sometimes one way and sometimes another. So we looked, for example, at a woman named Mary who basically gave up a year's worth of income to honor him. She took some perfume that was very expensive and she washed his feet with it. One of those who was watching on was a man named Judas who had a completely opposite reaction. He was enraged and he thought what she had done was a complete waste of precious resources. And then last week, we just hinted at a crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as the king, And some Greeks who we spent more time with who were there just to check Jesus out, see this man who had created so much buzz. (laughs) So, reactions to Jesus were mixed, and the general consensus shifted over time. It started out at the beginning when Jesus became public that he attracted large and enthusiastic crowds, but that eventually changed. In fact, it began to change fairly quickly. And the events we look at today, about a week before Jesus died, were at the beginning of the end of that loss of popularity. In fact, Jesus would die later that week virtually alone. There would be a few women and one frightened man who would look on from a distance. That frightened man was John, the author of the biography that we're looking at today. But before all of that took place, John describes the moment when Jesus' popularity plummeted. And he starts this account with a, an editorial comment. Including an extended quote from one of Israel's greatest and most popular prophets, a man named Isaiah. Now you can find John's words in John chapter 12, verse 37, um, beginning with verse 37. It's on page 1639 if you want to follow along in a pew Bible. Page 1639, although the words will also be on the screen. John 12. Verse 37 begins this way, he says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the words of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the Lord, that's the Lord's strength, been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because they saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Now, the very beginning, he mentions some signs. These are some miracles that Jesus did, a series of miracles that were designed to reveal Jesus' identity. But John says bluntly the people didn't get it and wouldn't put their faith in him. But he says that shouldn't surprise you. Because remember, even the greatest of Israel's prophets, Isaiah, had the same experience. When he was commissioned to be God's spokesperson, that he was even warned that the people wouldn't listen to him. Isaiah's story is a remarkable and actually a dramatic one. God chose Isaiah as his spokesperson in a dramatic scene that involved angels, an earthquake, booming voices from heaven, and copious amounts of smoke. And Isaiah was impressed. In fact, he was more than impressed. He was terrified. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And with that, one of the angels grabbed a live coal and touched his lips. This was a symbol of purification from sin, and told Isaiah that God wanted him to be... Let's just say his press secretary. But the assignment came with a catch. He says, the people won't listen to you. Here's the way he said it. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So if you know the story, you know that that's pretty much the way that it turned out. He spoke, the people ignored him. Eventually, he concluded that it might have been better if he hadn't even spoken at all. It seemed as if God had already decided in advance that they wouldn't believe. Now, John says, you know what? history's repeating itself. A new prophet has come. This is the prophet, the Messiah, and the people have turned on him. And so John repeats a version, paraphrasing the words that were spoken to Isaiah many years before about these blind eyes and hard hearts, when he says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts. And these are troubling words. They have really, really bothered a lot of people. Because is John saying that God blinded the people and hardened their hearts in advance, then judged them for disbelief and rejection of Jesus? So in other words, has God decided in advance that certain people must not and will not understand or believe? That's what some have concluded. If so, it sounds deterministic. As though we're playing out a script of decisions that have been made for us a long time ago. Like watching a bowling ball leave a bowler's hand. And just having to say, okay, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to watch what unfolds. So how does this work? Well, to understand, it's first of all helpful to know that in Hebrew literature, it often states what God foresees as though it's inevitable. So the author knows how things are going to turn out, so it makes it sound that way. So God tells Isaiah, the Jews won't believe, therefore they couldn't believe. But he's not indicating that we're just pawns and that we don't have free will, not indicating that everything's been predestined from the beginning. To understand this, we need to not only go, uh, we need to understand that even in the time of Isaiah, not every Jew refused to believe. And neither did every Jew in Jesus' stay either. In both cases, there were many that rejected the prophet, but not all. Secondly, even though God knew that many would first reject Isaiah and then Jesus, he's not saying in advance which specific individuals will disbelieve. It wasn't that it was impossible for the Jews of Jesus' day to recognize him as the Messiah, but it does tell us it wasn't surprising that many did reject him. So we shouldn't conclude that God has predestined certain people to unbelief, but rather understand that God has an understanding that is predictive without being deterministic. Predictive without being deterministic. Now that's a mouthful, so let me explain using an example. Two weeks ago I had lunch with one of my best friends, and we agreed to meet a few miles from here. Originally, we agreed to meet at 11.30, but he sent me a text that morning and said, hey, could we push it back to 12.30? That wasn't a surprise. That's something he often does. I arrived on time. Sometimes I arrive five minutes late because I'm trying to pack in one more thing, but that day I arrived right on time, and I knew that when I arrived that he would not be there. I knew that he would arrive anywhere from about 15 to 30 minutes late, so I didn't expect him for sure to be there until 1 o'clock. As it turns out, he showed up at about 12.45. Now, just because I knew that, first of all, the lunch might be pushed back and that he wouldn't show up on time doesn't mean that I willed him, I, that I decided in advance that that's when he would show up. I just know from knowing him that he will be late. John is not saying that belief or unbelief is baked into the cake. And even if, most, if many people reject Jesus... It doesn't tell us about any individual person and what their response will be to him. John did know, as Isaiah did, that in general, the people of his day would struggle to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. But in fact, John even makes the point that many did believe. But they caved into peer pressure because they feared being excluded from their local synagogues. They loved, he said, the applause of their peers more than the applause of God. So our response to Jesus, one way or the other, is not predetermined. We're ultimately responsible to decide for or against Jesus. But what John observed in Jesus' day is probably true of ours as well. And that is that there will be many, for one reason or another, who will reject Jesus. Perhaps even the majority. And even for those who are inclined toward belief, the temptation will be to consider the approval of others and either remain silent or turn away altogether. Now, one final note that I think is important. While it's, it, while it's critical for us not to understand these kinds of statements in the Bible as arguments for a sort of spiritual determinism, it's also important to acknowledge that on our own, we are not fully capable of figuring things out. The Bible's clear that we need some help. And that's why it's told, we're told that the Holy Spirit opens up our lives, our hearts, our minds, in order for us to be able to see the grace that's given us in Jesus Christ. That means that we won't come to faith unless God takes initiative with us. But the good news is that he does. And yet we are responsible to respond positively. The warning here is that if we turn from God, we may, it may be eventually impossible for us to see the truth. God doesn't cause us to sin, but the consequences of our sin is progressive spiritual blindness. But as real as this is, Jesus wants us to understand that this condition can be reversed. Jesus makes it clear that as long as we have breath, we have time to repent and to turn to him. And when we return to him, he's thrilled. Now, here's one example that may be familiar to some of you. It's a story that Jesus told about someone he called the prodigal son. This was a a young man who was uh, the son of a wealthy individual who had a great inheritance waiting for him at some point. In those days, in that culture, you received the inheritance when your father died. What this uh, young man did, in essence, was by asking for his inheritance early, was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But the father agreed, knowing full well that his son had hardened his heart against him, and he knew that he was uh, making a grave mistake, would likely waste the resources, and if you know the story, you know that's exactly what he did. But the father granted him his wish. But he didn't completely give up hope, because the story tells us that he hoped that he would come to his senses one day, that he'd realize the hell that he'd made for himself, and then he would return And so he looks, he's depicted in the story as looking out onto the horizon, day after day, hoping, waiting, and praying that his son would return. And he does. And when he does, the father surprises him by welcoming him, forgiving him, restoring him to the family, and throwing him an elaborate party. This reminds us that no matter how hard our hearts might be in a moment, or how spiritually blind we might be, that God is expectantly waiting and hoping and drawing us to himself. But the warning is is that the opportunity will not last forever. To explain spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness, John gives a couple of examples. We've already sort of alluded to these, but let me explain them more explicitly. And the first one is outright rejection. In other places, in other of Jesus' biographers, um, they give reasons for why people rejected Jesus. And the reasons vary. For some, it was jealousy or envy. Uh, For some, it was... uh, Fear of a loss of power. Some just enjoyed the comforts of being part of the ruling class. They had a knife lifestyle. They didn't want to give up. And so those folks rejected Jesus outright. But Jesus didn't speak to entirely deaf ears because there were some, even among the religious leaders, who believed but were afraid to go public with their faith. One reason was because there were these little gatherings they called synagogues, little places of worship, and the leaders of those places of worship had decided that anyone who decided to follow Jesus would be thrown out. they didn't want to lose their social network and their religious um, uh, affiliation. Uh, And so they became secret disciples. Others were afraid of what their friends would say. They decided that they had a lot to lose and that the opinion of their friends were more important than pleasing God. Jewish culture at the time, by the way, had a high value on honor. It was a status-conscious culture that was obsessed with social dignity, with avoiding public shame... And from what John says, this prevented many from publicly acknowledging faith in Jesus. From the outside, John makes this sound really foolish. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. They knew that their leaders were corrupt and blind and wanted to eliminate him. And yet they were not prepared to take the risk to go public with their faith in Jesus. Instead, they caved into this social pressure either because they wanted to keep their positions in society or um, to keep their money. John puts it that they were more interested in keeping up with the Joneses or the Cohens than they were in being right with God. The way he sees it, they had it backwards. What they were doing is um, valuing the, peer, the, the approval of their peers, which lasted just for a moment, and giving up God's opinion for eternity. And we've all been there in one way or another, at least I have, and as much as we'd like to think we're impervious to peer pressure, we're not. Whether we cave in or not, it's always challenging to go against the grain. When I was working at General Mills, I once traveled to New York City. We had an important meeting, which I've long ago forgotten what it was about, but it was with one of our ad agencies. And I think there were five of us that traveled, including a senior executive who had a reputation for being relatively hostile toward Christians. He knew me well enough to know that I was a Christian, and it didn't come up during the day or day and a half of meetings that we have had. But at the end of all of those, the agency uh, arranged for us to have a limousine to ride back to the airport. So all of us got into the car. And when we arrived at the airport and got out, we were approached by some folks who were handing out Christian tracts. Now, I'm not a big fan of of those kinds of impersonal ways of sharing faith. I don't think that they work particularly, and they often have the effect of making Christians look silly. But I don't doubt the sincerity of the people who were passing those tracks out. The first person who left the car was this senior executive who took one of these, looked at it, made a disparaging and profane remark, threw it on the ground, and kind of rubbed it out with his foot into the sidewalk. And I was, I think, the second one out of the car, and someone approached me, handed me a track, and I knew it wasn't the time or place to make some kind of public statement about my faith, and I certainly wouldn't call myself a courageous person, but in the moment, I knew that it was important for me to show respect for the message contained in the track. And so I took it, I said thank you, I put it in my pocket, and that was kind of the end of it. But I needed to do something publicly, at least in a small way, to show that I didn't have the same reaction the senior executive had. The reasons John mentions for rejecting Jesus are similar for the, to the reasons many reject Jesus today. It might be a hard heart, a refusal to believe because we don't want someone else to run our lives or because we don't want to give up control. Other times, we bargain with God. We say, listen, I'll follow you if you do this for me. Sometimes the truth is that we're more concerned with our own agenda, our desires and personal comfort, than we are in following Jesus. But at other times, we find ourselves in the second group. That is that we're sympathetic, maybe we even believe Jesus is the way, but it's really hard for us to publicly acknowledge that we are followers of Jesus because we know we might be criticized. Or to put it the way John does, we care more about the approval of others than we do the approval of God. Now, let me just give an example, and I want to give a qualification before I explain this example, but... um, Because I know that some of you have not chosen to be followers of Christ. You're still exploring Christian faith. And it might be easy for you to think, okay, wow, this guy is ganging up on me today. Um, It's kind of off-putting to have someone like me read a part of the Bible where it calls unbelievers hard-hearted and blind or to accuse people of giving into peer pressure. Let me make it clear that I know And I'm well aware that there are serious questions about faith that need to be settled, that need to be explored before you're willing to sign on the dotted line. And I want to be supportive of that. I read the Bible, I see the problems. One of the things Kara mentioned in her announcements today is we've challenged many at City Church this year to try to read through the New Testament, a chapter at a time. So we have these reading plans that are out on the credenza under the Jeremiah wall. And I'd encourage you to pick one up. And I've been reading this as well. And just this week, I told someone that as I read, I keep cringing and saying, oh, I wonder if I'm going to get an email about that. Because there are challenges and problems and things that are hard for us to understand. Often, there are great explanations. Other times, maybe not so much. The point, though, is that um, even though I believe that Christian faith offers the best, most comprehensive explanation of reality that there is, it doesn't mean that there aren't some challenging questions. And it doesn't mean that even people who are believers won't occasionally have doubts. But here's the caution I want to make. And that is that sometimes critics of Christian faith hide behind objections, not because the objection is so powerful, but because to admit that Jesus had a claim on our lives would ruin our weekend plans or make us look foolish with our friends. Many will do anything they can to undermine faith in Jesus Christ. They might even be successful in the short term. I don't believe that they will be in the the end. But the hard truth is that we need to be honest about these things. Even if they are difficult questions, sometimes the objection is really not as serious as we make it out to be, or as some would make it out to be. The hard truth is that judgment is coming for those who refuse to believe, and eternal life comes to those who do choose to believe. We spent most of our time today on the first seven verses in this text, but there are, uh, there's an ending. Those, by the way, that was all editorial comment. But the end is actually um, a brief excerpt from a sermon Jesus gave. And I want you to, to listen as I read from um, John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. Here's what Jesus says. It says, Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge the person, for I did not come into the world to come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say, um, say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. These are, by the way, the last public words that Jesus would, would say. Um, he'll say much more, actually, to his disciples, but that's a private conversation. And he'll say some, a few words when he's on the cross, but that was uh, to a comparatively small group of people. What he says here is his last public speech, and he makes it count. First, he claims to be equal with God. Anyone who believes in me is believing in the one who sent me. If you see me, you will see the one who sent me. Then he compares himself to a light that illuminates the darkness, and those who believe, he says, will live in the light. But the message of hope that he brings here comes with a warning. It's possible, he says, to turn your back on the light, to go on living in doubt and rebellion against God, and the result will be spiritual death. Now, Jesus rejects the idea that he came to judge the world. He says, I've come to redeem it, to liberate it, but those who choose to not listen to what I say will judge themselves. So he's not saying he judges them, he's saying that they will judge themselves by their unbelief. At times I'm asked what happens to those who've never heard about Jesus, and what Jesus says here shouldn't be considered the definitive word or answer to the question, but Jesus does say that we are judged by our response to his words. So if not all have heard what Jesus said, then it seems that judgment will only come in response to the truth that they have, the opportunities they have to respond to truth, not the opportunities they don't have. However, for us, we have heard these words, which makes us accountable. And so the warning that Jesus gives here, we need to take seriously and also understand that he points us toward eternal life. So what do you make of Jesus? Would you admit to being hard-hearted or even just a little bit blind? Now, don't feel judged just yet because many of us are hard-hearted about something. Even people who choose to follow Jesus struggle over their lives with trying to identify the areas in our lives where we are hard-hearted. And we find that choosing to follow Jesus means that from time to time we're going to be challenged in another area of life, maybe one we haven't understood we need to pursue God more vigorously in. Or you may be living a comfortable life but you aren't willing to give up what you think is the respect and approval of your friends in order to be perhaps misunderstood as a follower of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God confronts everyone. But remember in the end, Jesus said, he didn't come to condemn, but to save. But if we choose to reject Jesus, turn to walk away from him, we will face judgment. So how we respond to Jesus shows the character of our heart with God, toward God. And if we walk away, we're judging ourselves. We can't be blamed for not knowing, but we are responsible for responding to the truth that we have. Once we've been confronted with the truth, we'll judge ourselves one way or the other in how we respond to that truth. And while we still have time, let me encourage you to embrace the good news of Jesus' love and be willing to go public with your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, give us open eyes and soft hearts to see your son Jesus. May we put our trust in him, be willing to go public with our faith. May we put everything in perspective and remember that our true joy and happiness lies not in our own desires or in the approval of others, but in a relationship with you that will last for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.